The age of entitlement. That is what a lot of people say we live in today. And I don't think they're wrong. There certainly seem to be a lot of people that feel like the world should maybe revolve around them or they should get a lot of attention or they should get whatever things they want. So I went to one of my premium research tools this week, Google, and I typed in the age of entitlement because that's what was going through my head as I was studying our text for today. And out popped this book called The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement. And I thought, well, that fits pretty well. Let's, let's read this thing. It's written by a couple of psychologists who are narcissism experts at different universities and they came together to do a ton of research on tens of thousands of different people and lots of different studies and pull together this book that talks about the narcissistic culture in this country and its progression over time. So it's an interesting read. I'm not saying I agree with everything that's in it, but I do want to read to you how it starts because I think it's going to set up our passage today really, really well. We didn't have to look very hard to find it. It was everywhere. On a reality TV show, a girl planning her 16th birthday party wants a major road blocked off so a marching band can precede her grand entrance on a red carpet. A book called My Beautiful Mommy explains plastic surgery to young children whose mothers are going under the knife for the trendy mommy makeover. It is now possible to hire fake paparazzi to follow you around snapping your photograph when you go out at night. You can even take home a faux celebrity magazine cover featuring the pictures. A popular song declares, with no apparent sarcasm, I believe that the world should revolve around me. People buy expensive homes with loans far beyond their ability to pay, or at least they did until the mortgage market collapsed as a result. Babies wear bibs embroidered with supermodel or chick magnet and suck on bling pacifiers while their parents read modernized nursery rhymes from This Little Piggy Went to Prada. People strive to create a personal brand packaging themselves like a product to be sold. Ads for financial services proclaim that retirement helps you return to childhood and pursue your dreams. High school students, this is crazy, high school students pummel classmates and then seek attention for their violence by posting YouTube videos of the beatings. Although these seem like a random collection of current trends, all are rooted in a single underlying shift in the American psychology, the relentless rise of narcissism in our culture. Not only are there more narcissists than ever, but non-narcissistic people are seduced by the increasing emphasis on material wealth, physical appearance, celebrity worship, and attention-seeking. The narcissism epidemic has spread to the culture as a whole. And I left out a lot of examples. And I want to be clear, the author's point here, what they're talking about, is not just clinically diagnosable narcissism. Uh, What they're talking about is the broader effect of narcissistic tendencies or traits and entitlement mentality that seems to have become more pervasive, more shameless, and more demanding in our culture today. It's all over the media. It's all over the news. Thankfully, it doesn't seem to have affected our politics yet, but it'll get there, trust me. No, it's affected our politics, just to be clear. Music, medicine, sports, 
parenting, food, entertainment, and so many aspects of our daily lives have become incredibly self-serving, self-centered. So the authors of this book say that it has had repercussions for every age group and every class and has had, quote, catastrophic effects on our culture. What do you think? Do you think we live in an age of entitlement? And maybe more importantly than that, what about us? Have we allowed that entitlement epidemic, that culture of narcissistic tendencies, of of thinking things should revolve around us, have we allowed that to impact our lives? Maybe more than we'd like to admit. Of course, we don't call it entitlement when it's about us. And we certainly don't call it narcissism. No, we have a different word for things like that. We call those our rights. I have a right to be bitter at that person because of how they treated me. I have a right to get that person's attention. I have a right to that resource or that money. I have a right to that position that I want. I have a right to receive special treatment. I have a right to that parking space. I mean, we have all sorts of different things that we would use, but it's all because look what I've done or, or look at how much I make or, or look at how little I make or look at how much less I have than other people or, or look at who I am or look at where I came from or whatever it is. We have lots of reasons for it, for us to say, hey, I have a right to that thing that I want. I'm going to go ahead and give you the last three slides of my talk today. So you will know right from the beginning where we are headed. This is it. Too many people think they deserve what they have not earned. Too many people think they deserve what they have not earned. But the message of the Bible is just the opposite. We should serve like we have not earned. There's a huge difference between those two. We should serve like we have not earned. And here's the part about that that is so hard for us to accept. Sometimes that means we have to give up rights that we actually have. That's what this means. Serve like we have not earned once in some cases we have. And what I want to show you this morning is how we can do that. Paul describes this for us. He gives us models to look at, examples for us so that we can see what this looks like in our life. But I also hope to show you how there can be balanced and healthy boundaries in the middle of that. So we've been studying the book of Philippians. Chapter two is where we're at this morning. And I would love for you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, there may be one in the seat in front of you or you can of course use the YouVersion Bible app. You'll find us under events or go to efree.org slash Bible and follow along there. Philippians chapter two. And just before we read this, let's just stop. Take a moment, breathe, let go of the baggage of the week, those things that are distracting us, because we're about to study God's word and it deserves our whole attention. So let's just pray and ask God to help us to focus in on what he wants to teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And what I communicate today is is really, it's not for me, it's it's for you. It's it's for what you want to teach people. And you may communicate something through your word that's even different than what I'm sharing this morning. You may have uh, something to communicate to someone here, Lord, that your Holy Spirit's just gonna grip them with and it's gonna apply to them in a unique way to their situation. 
So my prayer, God, and I hope the prayer for all of us this morning is that we would just be open, that we are here waiting for you, Lord, to speak to us, to communicate to us, to teach us how you want us to live. And Holy Spirit, would you give us your guidance today? Your word, Lord, is so amazing that it can apply to each of us in different ways at the same time. And so I pray that you would help us to be receptive to that message this morning and that you would examine us and evaluate us and reveal to us areas that maybe we have been too self-centered. Maybe we have been seeking our own ego. Maybe we have been seeking just self-serving desires. And help us, Lord, to know how we can serve others like we have not earned. Teach us today. In your name I pray. Amen. Philippians chapter two, verse one, read along with me. It says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now to help us understand What Paul is communicating here, and there are lots of things we could pull from this text, we're going to take a very specific approach this morning as we talk about being lowly and rejoicing and how we can function in that lowly state and what that looks like. And what I want to show you is that there is a structure to this that I think will help us to see Paul's flow of thought. So this is on the back of your weekly program. If you want to follow along and take notes, there are five headings there. And you could put some information there if you want to retain this information, but the outline is already there for you. The first part is a rhetorical if-then. Rhetorical, something that doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyway. Rhetorical if-then is verse one. Appeal for unity is verse two. Then Paul gives us two examples in verses three and four. He points us to Jesus as the solution for this in verse five. And then in six through 11, he gives us Jesus as the model of what he's talking about. That is the framework that we are going to hang all of our other stuff on today. So if you follow along with us and if that helps you to give you some structure to this, I think you'll see how this whole passage is just a very nice cohesive point that Paul has pulled together. We're gonna start in verse one and work our way through. This is the rhetorical if then in verse one. And there are a few things here that Paul says are givens. These are rhetorical. These don't need to be said. He assumes these to be the case. Of course, there's going to be encouragement from belonging to Christ. Of course, there should be comfort from his love. Of course, we have fellowship together with his spirit. And of course, we want to have hearts that are tender and compassionate. And so these are not meant to be dividers for Paul. These are meant to be givens. 
This is supposed to be your default mode. His listeners or his readers in this case are supposed to be reading this and thinking, yeah, duh. Of course there's encouragement from being in Christ. Of course we have the Holy Spirit. Of course we want to have hearts that are tender and compassionate. And he does this because he's making a case for what he's about to communicate to them about unity. You see, there's a problem in the Philippian church where there are some people who are fighting against each other and and we don't know if it's just one instance, it's actually probably a lot of different things where there's just some division in the church. There's some disagreement about different things in the church and it's causing problems and this has been reported back to Paul. So he's about to make a case for unity but he wants them to know, guys, this ought to be your default mode. Because these things ought to be automatic. These should be a given. And then he gives them three things that he wants them to do. Make me truly happy, he says. Do this this one for me. Do this one for Paul. He says, I want you to agree wholeheartedly with each other. I want you to love one another. And I want you to work together with one mind and one purpose. Three things that make up the appeal for unity in verse two. So let's talk about each one of these and what they do and do not mean. The word agree, everybody's looking now because we have successive, it's contagious, isn't it? (laughs) I'm gonna start crying in a minute. I mean, it's just, (laughs) one one thing leads to another. It's just a reminder of the, the beauty of life that God gives us. So let's take each three of these and talk about them individually. The word Paul uses here for agree It's a really interesting word. It's very hard to translate because you might think that it refers to an intellectual agreement of thought, but actually it means something else. In the ESV, uh, we read same mind. The NIV says like-minded. None of those really fully communicate the sense of this word in the original Greek because it's actually more about an inner disposition or an attitude that you would have. It's more about emotional agreement than it is intellectual agreement of thought. It's the same word that Paul uses when he says, you must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. That's the same word. To agree wholeheartedly, you must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had. It's the same word he uses when he says, so it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you. That word for feel is this word, to agree wholeheartedly. It's right that I should feel, my emotions should feel this way about all of you because you have a special place in my heart, he says. It's the same word for wholeheartedly agree. This is not agreement on everything we think. And we know that also because Paul says in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll look at a little bit later this morning, he says that there are legitimate differences of view and belief and preference and conviction about some things. And so Paul is absolutely fine with there being some different things that we think, which is good because if that weren't the case, we would be in trouble. We all have some different ways of looking at things, different thoughts, even some different beliefs on secondary issues. And that is absolutely fine with Paul. It's actually a very humble thing to say, I don't agree with you on this issue. We disagree, but I understand that it's a secondary issue and so we can agree in our attitude and our feeling toward each other even though we disagree on some of our thinking. It means that our differences should not cause bitterness or grudges. We can agree emotionally even though we may disagree intellectually. This is a unity in the spirit, not a unity of everything that we think. So when I was a kid, I got to see a very nasty church split up close and personal. And almost down the middle, half and half, 
the church divided one side to the other. And it caused an incredible amount of pain and turmoil all over what is really kind of a a theological nuance. Not that it's not important, but it should not have caused the strife and division that it did. And I watched as one side did their best, uh, I believe, to try to reach civil disagreement and, and reconcile and, and have a great relationship and talk through it all. And one side just became bitter and angry. And, and there are all kinds of stories that come out of this I won't get into just, that demonstrated just how vile this had made one side of this argument because they were not at all willing to have that agreement emotionally that unity in the spirit that Paul is talking about here, that emotional unity. Does that mean that one of those sides should have suddenly stopped their views and stopped what they were believing and agreed with the other side? No, not necessarily. But they should have had agreement in how they treated each other, in their attitude for each other, and not have the bitterness and the anger that resulted. See, even though we disagree on some things, The attitude with which we treat each other needs to be for that other person. We're seeking what's best for that other person. And Paul's gonna unpack that a little bit more a little later, but but first let's look at the next one here. Paul says, loving one another. I want you to love one another. Literally, that means mutual love. Have the same love, one love. Remember, Paul is concerned about division here and the antidote to that division is love. Love is the opposite of bitterness toward another person. Someone said that bitterness, harboring bitterness or a grudge in your heart, is like drinking poison hoping the other person dies. It's really going to affect you more than anyone else. And yet for a lot of people, when there's a disagreement intellectually, they allow that to turn into a bitterness emotionally toward that other person. And Paul's message here is that love overcomes that. You can still disagree intellectually and yet have a mutual love, one love, the same love, and bitterness will just stunt your spiritual growth. And if you struggle to have love for someone else, the solution to that is pretty simple. Ask God to give you a love for that person. It's amazing to me how many people struggle with bitterness or hatred towards someone and we'll talk about it and I'll say, have you ever asked God to give you a love for them? No. It's never crossed my mind. Well, ask God. God says, if you ask it and it's in accordance with his will, he will give it to you. And I'm pretty sure, as we're reading today, that it is God's will for you to love other people. Even people you disagree with. And so if you ask God to give you a love for other people, I believe he will do it. But it's very important for us to note here, and I'm gonna do this throughout the message. You're gonna see some balancing perspectives here as we go. I think this is really critical. Because a lot of times this passage gets preached from a very particular angle. I want us to look at it holistically. It's important for us to note that love is not passively letting other people do or say whatever they think or want when it's damaging. That's not love. Love is not just letting people get away with anything that might be hurting people or hurting you or causing damage or harm in some way. That is not love. Paul says that we should speak the truth in love. And too often in churches, we think that the loving thing to do is to look the other way. The loving thing to do is to pretend there's not a problem. The loving thing to do is just sort of gloss over it and pull the rug over it and not deal with it. Several years ago, there was a a man in a church who was causing all sorts of division. And he was actually jumping from ministry to ministry in this church 
causing splits and division and abrasiveness and just driving people away. And so the ministry leaders of this church, several of them got together, went to the pastors and said, you've got to do something about this guy. He's driving people away. People don't want to come to our group anymore because he's there now. What are we going to do? And so the pastors agreed that one of them would go and speak to this man. It was nothing anyone looked forward to. This was not a friendly guy to interact with. He at one time had great passions and desires. And over the course of many years, those passions had turned into obsessions that were unhealthy and drove his family and his friends away. Not a fun individual to interact with. But one pastor went and met with him. And here's how that conversation went. He said, I don't think you mean it this way. I don't think you mean to come across this way. But here are the things that you have been doing that are causing problems in our church. And this pastor said that, explained what he meant, and waited for the fireworks. He expected this guy to come back with with all fire and brimstone and just, no, of course not, what are you thinking? And excuse after excuse and just to be defiant about it. And to his incredible surprise, as they talked through the issues, the man started to cry. And he said, thank you so much for telling me that. No one has ever cared enough to share that before. I've never heard this from anyone. And the amazing thing is that for years, great wonderful people in that church had observed this and in the name of love and peace and unity said and did nothing. And that day when one person reluctantly brought the truth in love, he got it. And he grew tremendously from that point on. We have got to be willing to speak the truth in love. Love does not just sweep things under the rug. There's a third thing that Paul wants us to do, and that is to work together with one mind and purpose. One mind, one purpose. That word for mind, it's the same word as before. It's the attitude, it's the mindset, it's the disposition toward other people. But the word for working together, now that's an interesting word. This is the only time this word appears in the whole Bible. It's the word simsekoi, the only time it's in the Bible. In fact, not only that, it is the only time this word appears in ancient Greek literature at all. We have no other examples, so we think that Paul actually created this word, that he coined this phrase, simsekoi, sim, S-Y-M, symphony. Sim means harmonious, harmony. Sekoi means soul. The meaning of this word that Paul put together is harmonious in soul. Such a beautiful thought. Harmony is not unison. Harmony does not mean everyone is singing the same note. Harmony means we might be on different notes, but they work together. They collaborate with each other. They don't clash with each other. They don't take away from each other. Harmonious in soul. Even though we are different. Different personalities, different views, different preferences, some different beliefs on secondary issues. We can be harmonious in 
soul. All of that leads up to this. It's a natural question. This is what I want to know as I read this text, and I hope this is what you're thinking right now too. Sounds great. How do we do it? How does that work, Paul? How do we put this into practice? Okay, you're telling us this is what we need to do. How? And that's exactly where he goes next. He gives us two examples. First, and I'm just going to give you my, my version of this, my paraphrase. He says, don't do things for selfish reasons or to impress others, but instead be humble and think of others as better than yourself. That's example one. And example two is don't do things just because they will benefit you or your desires, but think about what will be good for everyone else. Two examples, two parallel trains of thought, uh, a negative and a positive. Don't do this, do this. This is how you can have unity, even though you may disagree about some things. This is how you can be harmonious in soul, even though you are very different people. Don't be selfish. Don't do things that are designed just to benefit you. Don't try to impress other people. And what we need to notice about this is all of those are motive issues. That's very important. These are motive issues. Why does that matter? Because so many times as followers of Jesus, those of us who are followers of Jesus, and I understand there may be some who are not, but if we're followers of Jesus, we can do things thinking that we're serving God or trying to make them look like they're serving God or serving other people when really we're doing them with these kinds of motives. In fact, we can get lots of praise for doing a really good job and we can, we can get all sorts of, of affirmation that yes, we're doing a great job of serving God and really we're doing everything for selfish motivations or to try to impress other people or to try to get some benefit for ourselves. I remember younger, especially as a teenager, uh, I was involved in a lot of ministry and I got to know a lot of guys who had become very successful in ministry and, and speakers and leaders and just Christian authors and those types of things. And one of the things that struck me was not all the time, but sometimes when I would get to know one of these guys who's kind of like a hero and you know they say never meet your heroes. There's a reason for that. And you get to know some of these people up close and some of them were fantastic, godly, wonderful people. And other people, I got close to them, I started to see how they treated other people and I went, you are so egotistical. (laughs) You are doing this all for your own benefit. In fact, I started to have a way of thinking of this. I I saw some people who I felt like were hijacking Christianity for their own ambition. And that's really really what they were doing. Because when you got to know them on a closer level, everything they did was about me. It was about what they were doing. It was about what they could achieve. It was about promoting themselves. They didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what's gonna be best for others. How am I gonna impact others? And maybe at one time they started with great motives, but eventually what they were doing that looked like it was service to God and service to other people was done with the wrong motives, wrong in God's eyes. And so instead, Paul says, be humble. Think of others as better than you. Think of others as better than you. How does that work exactly? How can we think of others as better than you? This was confusing to me when I was a kid. I'm like, I don't know how that works. Let me give you an example. So, uh, Kevin Crosley is one of our newest pastors here, right? Kevin has a degree, a, a PhD actually, in organic chemistry. There is no way that Kevin can ever think I am better than him at chemistry. It's not going to happen. John Richardson has 
tons of experience and training and years of practice in care ministry. Far beyond anything I will ever have. There is no way that John is ever going to be able to look at me and go, you're better than me at care ministry. It's just not true. Don Earhart has all this experience and training and and practical know-how in student ministry. There's no way that Don can look at me and say, you are better than me at student ministry. So what, what is Paul talking about here? How can we think of others as better than ourselves? Well, whenever we're looking to interpret scripture and it's a challenge for us, it's really helpful for us to go to other scripture to interpret that scripture. You have to take the whole counsel of God's word into account and look at, okay, this passage gives us an idea of what Paul has in mind here and it overlaps and applies over here and so we get a better picture of what Paul is trying to say here. And I think when you look at this whole passage, what you'll see is that it overlaps big time with what Paul is telling the church in Corinth. This isn't the first time that Paul has shared this type of information with a church. And so I wanna take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, Paul says something very similar to the thought that he's communicating to the Philippians. Here's what he says. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace. Now, just real quick, that was the issue they were dealing with in Corinth. Some people had an issue with meat that was sacrificed to idols, and some people thought it was okay to eat. And Paul is saying, it's okay. You may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So we have some different beliefs here and some disagreement about those different beliefs. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered to you without raising questions of conscience because it's, it's fine. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. That means they think it's wrong. The reason they're bringing this up is because they're saying, hey, by the way, this was offered to an idol. You probably should not eat this. So now you know they have a belief that this is wrong. Don't eat it, he says, out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you. It's fine for you. It's technically fine, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? In other words, yes, you have that freedom. You have that right. You can do that. Their conscience does not make it wrong for you to do that. However, if I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I condemn for eating it? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense. Don't give offense to the Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. Here's what Paul is saying. I have certain rights. I have certain freedoms I have the right to eat that meat that was sacrificed to an idol. There's nothing wrong with that for me. I can go and do that, he's saying. And some people have convictions against certain types of entertainment and and certain types of of food or, or, or certain types of drinks or other activities or things that you might do. And just because you disagree doesn't mean the other person doesn't have that right. They do. Just because there's a difference of opinion about a secondary issue does not mean that that difference of opinion or conviction about that issue means the other person no longer has that right. That's what Paul is saying. But he says, I will gladly give up that right 
if they are around me and have made that conviction known to me. So if I know about it, then I'm going to think of their conviction and their view and their belief as better than mine. That's treating someone else as better than yourself. That's thinking of them as better than yourself. It means being willing to give up our rights when appropriate and treating someone else's convictions or someone else's needs as more important than our own. At the same time, understanding that their conviction doesn't make it wrong for us. It is a right, but we're thinking of them as better than us. Probably the best example I've seen of this, and I think I I shared it here, but it was a year ago, so some of you haven't even heard this before, is about 15, 16 years ago, a professor of mine offered to give me a ride from one side of the campus to the other. And so I got in the car and he was reaching over for the knob to turn on the radio. And right before he turned it on, he stopped and he looked at me and said, hey, this is the type of music I'm about to play. Do you have any problems with that? Is that an issue for you? And I was so amazed. This is the first time I had ever seen a follower of Jesus turn to another follower of Jesus and say, hey, before I do this thing, I'm aware that you might have some convictions against it maybe. So is this going to be a problem for you? He was thinking of me as better than him. Here's the thing. He had every right to play whatever music he wanted to play. It was his car. He was more than twice my age. He had been a pastor for many years. Now he's a professor uh, at a school. I mean, the, the guy had lots of degrees and he, was, he knew the scriptures. He knew it was totally fine for him to play that music. And yet he gave up his rights or he was willing to give up his rights just in case I might have a problem with what he was about to do. And that stuck with me. I still remember it vividly. And I've integrated that into my own life now to where I will frequently, if I think there might be something, I'll ask and say, hey, I'm about to do this. Is this gonna be a problem for you? Or if we, if we go and do this thing, is this gonna be a problem for you? Just wanna make sure. Doesn't mean that it's wrong for me, but it means I'm willing to give up my rights in that situation. And by the way, we did turn on the music and he probably, I don't know, turned on Skillet or POD or something like that. I have no idea what we listened to. It was some kind of modern Christian music that surprised me. He was even concerned about it. The fourth thing in your outline is Paul pointing people to Jesus. Paul points people to Jesus in verse five. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This should be our default mode. This should be that baseline, home base for us, the same attitude, harmonious in our soul, willing to think of others as better than ourselves, willing to defer to their convictions because that's what Jesus did. Paul talked about being united in our mindset. It's the same word here, attitude, that wholeheartedly agreeing, that word attitude, the same attitude as Jesus. And so next he's gonna share with us Jesus as the model Here's what Jesus did for you, so you need to have this attitude toward other people. What did he do? Verse six says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. We're gonna come back to that. He didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. And what I want you to zero in on here is verse six. If you've got that open in your Bible, look at verse six where he says that he did not think, Jesus did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. It wasn't something to cling to. What does he mean by that? Jesus had every right to stay where he was. Jesus had every right to let us pay for our own sins. He had every right to hold on to his divine privileges, to cling to his divine privileges, and yet he didn't. He didn't think of his equality with God as something to cling to. Jesus, equal with God, enjoying this special relationship with God the Father, decides to give up his divine privileges, not cling to his equality with God, but allow himself to lose some of those privileges, allow himself to become lesser, and we don't even understand exactly how all that worked. But he made himself lesser, gave things up so that he could minister to us, serve us. He gave up his rights for people that didn't have any of those rights. And how often do we cling to our rights? It's my right. I have a right to do that. You may have a right to come home from work and not help your wife or the kids. You may have that right. But is that treating her as better than yourself? You may have the right to ignore someone who really needs your help. You may have that right, but is that clinging to your rights? Is that what God wants from you? You may have the right to be frustrated with your kids, but do you value them enough to get down on their level and try to understand them and treat them and serve them as if they're better than you? And believe me, I know how hard that is. Kids can be challenging. But in the heat of the moment, you may have the right to do or say that thing, but is that really treating them as better? Is that really valuing them? You may have the right to look the other way when you see injustice. But is looking the other way going to create the mutual love that God wants for us? Or just more self-centeredness, more selfishness? I'm gonna say something here that might seem like it's veering off a little bit and it might seem like it's political and please know I am not trying to be political here uh, but it ties in completely with what we are talking about here and so I think we need to address it. I saw this picture on Wednesday. This picture, um, when I saw it, I'm not exaggerating here, it made me sick to my stomach because if you know the context around this picture, these are people who are smiling and laughing and getting all kinds of joy out of expanding the opportunity to murder children who are made in the image of God. It's terrible. And what struck me about this as I was studying for this message was, here we have people who are joyful and glee about taking the rights of another person all in the name of rights. It's my right. I deserve to be able to do this, to be able to make that choice. And I know that abortion is something that has affected a lot of us in different ways. And it's so important that we acknowledge the fact that with God, And in our community, there is healing, there is restoration, there is forgiveness, and there are people here who have found that, and that's wonderful. 
And I think it's also important to note that every person on that picture smiling at making possible what is a tremendous evil is also created in the image of God. And if they will trust in Jesus and repent of their sins, God will forgive them too. And he will restore them and he will heal them. But the simple truth is this. We have a lot of people in this country who are doing a lot of terrible things in the name of their rights. And we struggle with the exact same thing. Jesus had every right to stay in heaven. That was his entitlement. He was entitled to that privilege, but he lowered himself to a lesser status so that he could serve those of lesser status. And this is absolutely crazy to me. Jesus valued us more than his divine privileges. Think about that. Jesus valued us more than his divine privileges. But there is one huge caveat to all of this. And I warned our tech people and our service people this morning that I was going to go a little bit longer than normal today. So now you've all been warned as well. I've reached the end of my time and I'm going to take a little bit more. Here's why. What I just preached, that's a standard not standard, but that's just, that's a normal way to look at that text. Hey, give up your rights. You need to be willing to give up your rights. Jesus gave up his rights. You need to be willing to give up your rights too. And probably for many of you, that's what you needed to hear this morning. That's what God had for you this morning. But too often we read verses like that and we hear messages like this and we leave thinking that they are a spiritual club to be used against other people. And so we take verses like this and we misuse them for our own benefit because, and maybe this applies to some of you, I don't know, you may be sitting there thinking, this is so great that everyone else is hearing this message this morning. Like, I know the person next to me really needed to hear that. I would love for them to give up more of their rights for me. Like, if they would just agree with me, we wouldn't have this problem we've been having. Unity of mind here, come on. Like, just align with my mind and we'll have unity. And we're good. And we have to be so careful about this. It's a two-way street. And there's another set of people that are probably in here today that probably need to hear what I'm about to say a lot more. And that is this. Paul and Jesus had healthy boundaries. This is the side of this text that maybe we don't always think about. Yes, we are to give up our rights, but Paul and Jesus had healthy boundaries. Let me give you some examples. So Jesus did not give up his rights permanently. And he did not give up all of them. He gave up some of them for a time. We don't exactly know what they were, how that worked precisely. He gave up some divine privileges. He gave up some equality. He gave up some relationship. He was separated with God for a while, but not permanently. Jesus did not give up the right to control the weather. Jesus did not give up the right to forgive sins or to come back from the dead. Satan would have loved if Jesus had just given up all of those rights permanently, but he didn't. Paul did not give up all of his rights. 
There were times when Paul used his rights as a Roman citizen to be freed from oppression. There were times when he was attacked by other Christians and he defended himself and called them out for it. There were times when he gave his background and his credentials as a demonstration to people to say, I know these people are teaching this, but they are wrong. Here are my credentials to show I am teaching the truth. Paul did not give up all of his rights. He had healthy boundaries. So one concern for me today is that people might walk away from here and think, well, this applies to all the other people. They should be willing to give up their rights with me so we can be of one mind. And that's not at all what what I think this means. But I am equally concerned for those people who may be in some kind of a relationship where one person always wants them to give up their rights. And where that may be unhealthy, whether it's the right to an opinion or the right to disagree, or the right to equal standing and say in decisions, or the right to be involved in the finances, or the right to be involved with parenting the kids, whatever it may be, whatever that relationship is, whatever that looks like, we can get into unhealthy situations where some people feel like, I just have to give up all of my rights, and that's what Jesus would want from me, and I'm here to tell you, that is not what Paul is saying. There is a healthy balance to this. And I know everything I just mentioned requires a lot of careful prayer and evaluation. There's a lot of nuance to all of that. But please do not leave here and think. And this is where I think we've missed the boat so many times in churches. Please do not leave here and think that what Paul is saying is he wants you to be a doormat. There was a guy in the early service who said, this is why I cannot stand that my parents named me Matt. Doormat, floor mat, Everything with Matt is sort of negative and on the floor. God did not intend for you to be a doormat. And here's the reality. Sometimes what you are doing, and I know this doesn't apply to everybody here, but it it applies to some people. Sometimes what you are doing by passively allowing people to do whatever they want and walk all over you and give up all of your rights is not loving toward that other person. It's not. And it's not healthy for you. It's not actually treating others as better than yourself. In fact, it is harming that person because they need to hear that what they're doing maybe isn't right. And so there is a healthy balance to this and there are healthy boundaries to this where it is important sometimes through prayer and wise counsel and seeking God through this and studying his word to say, no, actually, that is something that I need to stand firm on. That is something that I need to speak into. That is something that I need to confront. That is something we need to have a conversation about. Because this does not mean that you should just give up all of your rights. Paul and Jesus did not. At the same time, we need to be willing to give up our rights. Even the ones that we deserve. Even the ones that we've earned when it's appropriate. I think some of you probably needed the first part of the message and some of you may have needed the second part of the message. Hopefully there was something there for everyone. We need to have healthy boundaries to know when it's appropriate to give up our rights and when it's actually not helpful or loving for the other person. So I just want to take us back to where we started. And I apologize for the time, but I felt that was worth it. Here's where we started. Too many people think they deserve what they have not earned, right? The message of the Bible is just the opposite. We should serve like we have not earned. Let me pray for you. God, for everyone in this room and everyone watching online, I pray that you would help us to take these truths from your word, 
let them sink in. Give time for reflection right now, Lord. Through your Holy Spirit, reveal some areas where maybe we've had self-centeredness, where maybe our ego has gotten in the way, where maybe we've been all about what we can get or our attention or our desires and we need to be willing to give up some of those rights for other people. And at the same time, Lord, for those that may have found that they have been trapped in, in sort of a passivity that is not what you want either, where they've actually been giving up rights that you never intended for them to give up, Lord, that they would find the boldness and the courage to speak up, to speak the truth in love, and to maybe even help someone by doing that. Lord, help us to have a mutual love with each other. Help us to have that simsekoi, the harmonious souls, even though we might have some disagreements. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, if you need prayer tonight, we'll be at the, or this morning, this afternoon, whatever it is, we'll be at the front. Come on up and see us. We'd love to pray for you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week.